she found her freedom or something and peace of mind with her past that didn't make any sense to begin with. Well, at, at least she found something like 15 Valentino dresses. Or she's losing her mind here. I, I, or she's losing her mind, which I, I pretty much her. could be the exact same thing. <laughs> Moving from linear to the abstract, it's what you get at the Flick Lab podcast. Welcome to the Staggering podcast. Also, something that Henrik might call a tidy herpaus in Finnish. Except, this is kind of, you already seen it version of tidy herpaus. We have had the Uncle Pune, from which our today's film borrows its cinematographer. We're also borrowing a musician. From our past episodes. Yeah, going all the way back to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> and and since since we are talking about your personal dream team of filmmakers, we are also borrowing the director, Luca Guadagino, who we previously met in Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, fine dude. One of my favorite episodes to do and to watch also. The guy whose name I still cannot pronounce properly, Luca Guadagnino, I'm sorry. But luckily, luckily we have e- easy to pronounce Western names, like Julianne Moore and Kyle <laughs> McLachlan <laughs> and Mia Goth. Alpa, Alpa, I admit that I had to go to, to the powers of Google to check out how to pronounce McLachlan. The pronunciation feature of Google Translate really has become a friend when do- when doing this podcast. Yeah, we checked Call Me By Your Name from the director before, and and it was inevitable that there'd be more Luca Guadagni, Guadagnino in the show. Yeah, and we still haven't been able to touch upon the Suspiria remake because we are kind of lazy that way. We could check that. I have no problem at all. With more Sayampi Mukti Pram and Guadagnino. Well, neither do I. Even though I do feel that if we are gonna tackle the remake, we have to also do do the original and have yeah. well, once again yeah. that that comparison thing going on. And go once again back to Italy. This tonight's film, The Staggering Girl. It's been one of the movies, movie.com, streaming platforms, most promoted film if not the most promoted film of the entire year. And there's good reasons for it. Movie.com is this kind of a tide herpaus platform for films or a platform for art cinema. If our listeners want to see this film, they can go to movie.com and uh, if you go to our Facebook or Twitter or Instagram pages, you can find an invite to movie. So if you use that and subscribe, we will get a free mo- month in movie. What's your history with this film, Henrik? Never seen it before. 
This uh, also was my my first go-to with movie as a service. Never tried them before. Movie being a streaming platform which markets itself as a plat platform that handpicks the films that it, it shows in its catalog. So and because of that, it should be more artistic and more better in quality-wise than something mass product platforms like Netflix or what you have in Finland. That being said, of course, my first hooray into into movie wasn't all, all, all that smooth sailing. I I, I got your your invite. To, to try the service, I managed to create a user account, but for some reason the invite didn't go through. So I'm I'm currently going through my seven-day trial period. Well, at least that. So let's hurry up making this episode before you need to pay. Unless you're going to stick with movie, I've been I've been a customer for like six months, but of course because I do a film podcast, I don't have time to watch films, so. I haven't seen too many. There there are some short films that I watch every now and then. Nice thing about film is that, indeed, I would say all of the films, almost all the time, are something that you cannot find in Netflix. And if you need a break from Netflix into something more, let's say, artistic, in the lack of a better word, movie.com is real, real nice. And the way that the platform works is that there is always, like, is it? exactly like 30 films and uh, well anyway every day they will remove one film so it's like a, like a change changing catalog of films that is updating every day one movie gets removed and one movie gets added this is also some kind of a way to get more quality into the platform you keep it for a shorter time and whereas netflix uh, yeah, and, and you know, if, if you cherry pick your films, you're kind of a, in a due course of time, you're kind of a forced to land on at least something good. Uh, what is The Staggering Girl? Well, it's an experimental art short film from Guadagnino, as stated, and produced in collaboration with uh, the Valentino Clothing Company's creative director, Pierpaolo Piccioli. Which kind of does show extremely forcefully when you watch the film to, to a point where I, I would almost make the case that it, it's at times it's hard to say which one this is is it is, is this artistic experiment short film or is this just you know short film length clothing commercial yeah this is a statement made by many reviewers of the film and I understand that, and it's a hardly new concept that uh, films seem to be kind of like advertisements for clothing companies every once in a while. It also ain't a new concept like established filmmaker, director, and actors to appear in a highly stylized commercial short film. Tire companies and whatnots have been putting these stunts off. However, the director of the film, Guadagnino, is adamant that this is not an advertisement of any kind for the clothing company more it's like a story that wanted to em emphasize or give some kind of a more character for the characters as well via their clothing to be honest when i was watching this film for the two first times without knowing anything about the clothing company basically 
I didn't even really notice. I mean, I saw that there's a lot of fancy clothing in the film, but didn't feel like it was screaming advertisement to me. It it doesn't necessarily scream advertisement. Uh, of course, your take on that may differ, depending on how much of of these high budget advertisement films you've seen. Because this film actually does do a quite a lot of the same tricks as as for example your your car or tire commercials. And in, in many ways I, I can see the comparison between those those advertisement short films and, and Lucas short film here. Uh, this film had its world premiere at Cannes Film Festival on May 17, 2019. And uh, from here we could go to the writer. This film is written solely by Michael Mitnick, American playwright. This film is much criticized for its screenplay, at least looking at the professional reviews that I have found. But we will get to that. Uh, the Variety has also selected Mitnick as one of the 10 screen writers to watch in 2013 and has won awards for his theater work. He's mostly like a playwright, as stated. So Julianne Moore, <clears throat> who is Julianne Moore, Heinrich? Do you, do you know anything about this girl? Mostly unknown. I, I don't know if, if that many people anymore know Julianne Moore, the, the star has been waning in, in, in during the later years. The most notable time period for more is, is kind of a behind her, unfortunately. Uh, uh, I, I would I would concur uh, after watching in the theaters, unfortunately, the film Gloria Bell from 2018, and I almost tried to kill myself doing it. Any other actors or actresses that you would like to pick up here? Well, outside of Kyle, not not really. Like you, you do have some familiar faces. If you if you've seen the director's previous works, like like previously mentioned, for example, Goth, who also appeared in the Suspiria remake. But when it comes to the main cast, I would say that that Julianne and Kyle, they are the most perhaps well known, most recognizable faces of of the cast. Kyle McLachlan, who is known for the 90s version of the Twin Peaks TV series and the film prequel to it in 1992, and has appeared in a couple of David Lynch films. There is the Dune from 1984. The new version of Dune is, of course, coming at the end of this year. Also appeared in David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Yeah, and uh, te technically Kyle, at least for me, he's al always been the Lynch guy. His heydays, unfortunately, were with with David Lynch. And oh, his his heydays were with the film The Flintstones from 1995, playing oh, Clifford Vandercave. Oh, brutal! I had actually forgotten The Flintstones completely. Yeah, the film that I saw when I was about seven years old, and already was like, turn it off. That was nearly unwatchable mess. And you mentioned me a goth. She plays young Francesca here. I could only figure out from the inter interwebs that she has been in Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. The Kiki Lane is playing this adult character, the black lady. And she's known for If Bill Street Could Talk, Native Son and The Old Guard. All films that I haven't seen and I, ha I have no touching point on. Old Guard being the now hot shit film of Netflix. 
he had its highlights like three weeks ago and i guess in in netflix terms that means that now today everybody's already forgotten the movie and in cinematography as already stated Simon Mukti Brahm and uh well let's just talk about the film this is of course a film that requires a bit explaining there's an artistic decision the movie kind of wants to be abstract and it kind of wants to defy having a meaning kind of they they more want to be ideas graphical exercises i would go as far as to say that when when it comes to any kind of narrative when when it comes to having a story well the film storyline is pretty damn thin well it depends i guess what you see in the film and how you connect the dots or or if that's even your point film doesn't really it 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 really doesn't want to ki- you to connect the dots or really to create a story like this is kind of the kind of the Mulan Rouge situation that how can you ap- approach and what can you really say about a movie that doesn't want to be something like can you fault a movie for uh, for for not having a, a, a storyline and not really having your traditional something to say in it if the movie knowingly wants to avoid it yeah well let's start at least with the the characters uh julian moore plays of course this character called francesca and later on we meet her mother named sophia and during the course of the film we are intertwining messing with different timelines that there's the past and there's the present day and scenes involving Sofia and Francesca and it's something that Francesca is remembering kind of going through her past at the same time that she is writing her memoirs and but there's also this mystery character sort of this adult this black lady character who sort of seems to write the memoirs of Francesca as she kind of takes over when Francesca is trying to figure out what the hell to write about her on her memoirs and kind of what the character of Adot is shown to experience here or what she is explaining about. It is something that also Francesca has experienced, at least partly. And it's also something that the mother has experienced, as, as it stated in the ending moments of the film. Yeah, then again, what what other describes having experience? It's kind of a overall experience or very general experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the first moments of the film, we are in Francesca's what seems to be a rented apartment in New York, though. So in the first goes of the film, I was thinking, of course, that this is the rented apartment in Italy because she needs a rented apartment there, but. No, as she goes outside, we figure out that it's New York by the taxis and everything. But yeah, and uh, apparently that I'm I'm guessing that's supposed to be well, like her apartment because the, the the main point of of the story when it comes to narrative wise is that Francesca travels to Italy to 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 ask her mom to come with her to New York. Maybe move in together, or you know, move into to house next door, or 
move some place, but caretake facility, perhaps even. Uh, p- perhaps even it's uh, this is one wealth aspect where the the whole it, it it's more uh, more an artistic experiment and not so much. Uh, traditional narrative storytelling aspect of the film comes to show that the movie doesn't really explain where Francesca is coming from, what is this memoir she's writing, uh, whose memoir she really is writing. It's hinted that it's hers, but it's never really stated. Everybody just asks how the memoir is going. Including the supposed uh, husband of Francesca. She's having a phone call with the, the supposed presumed husband, but then she cuts off the phone call once he starts to ask questions like, how, how is the writing going? And Francesca, I miss you. Can you please come home? So, so it seems to suggest to the audience that all is not going well in this relationship, whatever kind of relationship it is, because maybe because Francesca is secretly still in love with this mystery character that is also kind of intertwined with her character in the in the film. This person from the opera. Yeah, perhaps or then not, because nothing is going that well with Francesca altogether. Uh, all all her interactions with other characters of the film, they, they are kind of icy and and somewhat tense. Hell, even even when Francesca is doing something like walking down the street, she has this troubled, haunted look on her face, like, oh gosh. What about mom and and the the boy toy, boyfriend, husband thing that she has? I think uh, Bruno is some kind of a personal assistant to her, because at least that much is stated that from Francesca's mouth that it suggested that she is living there alone. So uh, it seems to suggest that they don't have any sexual going. Like uh, Bruno is, is complaining how uh, Sophia doesn't want to open up and she's pushing people away. And that that's an, that's an emotional argument to, to throw. You are pushing me away. And likewise, we have never even actually, you know, been been shown Bruno cashing in a paycheck. So if if he is supposed to be a personal assistant, someone who is, you know, being paid to help Sophia out, well, you you never really see that one either. You 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 see Bruno around the house. In fact, you see bunch of bunch of dudes around the house or houses. All of those those dudes being Carl McLaughlin, who actually is is all the male characters of the film, just to add more into the confusion. Yeah, they they ran out of budget, so they had to use Carl McLaughlin in all the male lead scenes. No, but uh, we can get to why this happens. But okay, that's interesting about the the scene where Francesca is hearing during the nightly scene in her bed, supposedly this this argument going on because I, I thought this was based on the past i guess because many of the previous scenes where she heard voices they were from the past so i instantly connected this to the past but now that makes kind of sense this whole argument quote no this is because i'm losing my sight it's because you're absent it is not obsession it is a choice what have i missed you just don't want to grow old with it's never woman. established when sophie uh started to lose her eyesight. 
She's blind now as an old person when, when Francesca returns to Italy. That, at that point in time, she's being, she is blind. But when, when that, that losing of eyesight started, never established. So that might be, like you said, that might be an earlier memory. Something that, that Francesca heard in, in her teens or somewhere around that time. Something that, that makes this all even more confusing is that as far as I was able to pick up, uh, it, it would appear that at least that the chain of dialogue from, from Sophia's end would start with the actor of, of her younger self. That the actor of, of, of the younger Sophia would, would be the one who would first yell, uh, shout, no. Which is the very first thing that you heard from the dialogue exchange between Sophia and, well, whoever is Carl McLaughlin being at this point of the film. Yeah, this 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 is argument, nightly argument. I thought it could be also young Sophia and some kind of a early fling that she had going on when she was in her twenties or something like that. Like mentioned. The, the film does take these deliberate steps to, to ma- make piecing this together and to actually define who is the character speaking at any given moment harder, more harder to the audience. To add even more to the confusion, in the very next scene, it's, it's daytime, and at this point, Carl McLaughlin's Bruno is walking out of the household apparently now being kicked out. Dear listener, uh, if you haven't watched the film yet, for some reason, uh, do yourself a favor, at least go through the synopsis of the film first, because you won't even get to know many of the character names if you don't, and you will not know the motivation of Francesca going to Italy if you don't. And you also don't know that she is actually traveling to Italy until you get to this somewhere, the midpoint of the film, when she's others the words to her mother that hey i want to get you out of here and th- this is further made confusing because there is not any kind of a shot where you would see francesca's plane landing in rome italy no it's just like she's at her apartment and suddenly she's at this party that supposedly takes place in rome and she goes outside of the 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 the, op- the party place is actually the opera house goes outside of the opera house and then just takes her bags and walks over to Mama. Yeah, yeah, and, and be, be, before that, be, between going outside from the party and, and picking her bags, the, there's also the mystery scene where she first sees Adat in, in a pink dress and starts to chase after her. In a midway point of the chase, Adat's dress Changes into into something more colorful, more bluish, and Adot goes behind the corner and disappears into an empty street. And that is the the swan containing outfit, the, which contains blue and yellow colors and white. This is the this is the outfit that we see in the very first shot of the film on Julian Moore's character Francesca, which is, I would say, the exact same shot that we end the film with spoilers, spoilers. Well, this is full of spoilers. And th- this is the kind of a garment dress that keeps traveling from the cra- character of Adut to Francesca to also the, to the mother. You could almost say that the 
Dress is the most consistent and most established character that the film has. Yeah, yeah. There is the um, the opera. There is this character Patrizio also, who comes to greet Francesca first. Vera's relationship to Patrizio Patrizio is not clear. It's not a lover. That much is clear from the later dialogue. Is it a friend? Anyway, Patrizio comes to say hi, and the P in Patrizio probably stands for pointless because that's that's all you hear from Patrizio. But then there is this Vera who introduces Patrizio and Vera is the Francesca's old friend, probably from school, who knows. Uh, we'll find out later that she is some kind of a friend because she came to visit the family home, quote, every day. Even, even though at this point, Francesca's mom makes the remark that it's, it's hard to remember Francesca's friends since they all came and went, Quite quite rapidly, I I guess as 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 quickly as as Francesco was switching on the with, with the boys. So it's it's once again with where it's also hard hard to say exactly how good friend she was. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that the mother is not able to remember all the past friends of her daughter because uh, if her life has been as consistent and linear as this film then i'm not surprised it kind of looks like that at 7 minutes 26 seconds there could be luca guadagnino doing a cameo or uh, you could see him going from the right end of the frame to the left and but it could just as well be some other bearded fella do you see any point in the whole everything we own disappeared in an hour story that Vera is coming up with in this opera. She thinks that she lost all of her valuables during moving, but uh, she was only in the wrong floor or whatever, whatever it was. To, to me, it was just one more moment in the film, which is supposed to tie into, into the whole ethos of, of not having a straightforward and clear narrative. So the character of Angelo, played by Kyle MacLachlan, is in the opera, and uh, things get a little bit sexual here. And uh, it kind of starts with a handshake. It's Vera who is introducing the character of Angelo to Francesca. It seems that they don't know each other, but once they get to the back room of the opera, then it's it seems to suggest that they already know each other. And the character of Angelo is echoing what the character of Adut has said, especially in the end of the film. We also have all this, the mother, Francesca, Adut, they are tied together in this unexplainable way. Yeah, except what happens with with Angelo is that Angelo shows up painting. Not, not the most, but I would say, sensual and erotic. Well, no, and <laughs> because it's a mother's painting as well, which is the painting that we get to in the later parts of the film when we see Bruno carrying it into the garage or something. Apparently the inspiration for this painting here is coming from an Italian painter Maritza Meritz, however you pronounce that, who is a painter who apparently repeated the same topic throughout her career. Which I'm I'm taking is something that the mom is also supposed to do, because you are being shown a couple of scenes where she is painting something, whatever that is, is never actually truly shown to you. But but the color scheme be, between the painting that Bruno holds in his his hands when he's 
taking it to the shed and and whatever it is that that mom is putting on the canvas at the moment is closely similar. Then again, with, with that out of the way, to, to once again confuse you a little bit more. When Bruno carries the painting into the shed, you can clearly see that the shed already has other paintings in it. One or two other paintings that you get, get that yeah, that you see, and it's quite apparent and obvious that they are not the same painting. So the mom has also been painting something else, some other shape, just by with just with just using the, the exact same color palette. Yeah, well, just one scene previous, b before this one, there is uh, the mama is saying that uh, she's rage painting again. We see in the beginning of the film that she's painting something that just puts some kind of a red circle around it and seems to be really frustrated about her eyesight. And in this one scene towards the end of the film, she says that she got a great idea. I don't know, maybe it's an idea about how what the film script means, but uh, uh, supposedly it's about an idea that she got for a painting. Now, in the in the next scene, it's what you just described. Bruno's taking the paintings out. For all we know, Bruno's probably tired of this fucking bullshit and puts the goddamn paintings in the garage because she's sick of his role as the helping hand. Yeah, or, or then it's just, you know, mom who has w once again decided that, that whatever she painted was, was other shit and yeah. has to be taken out of the house. Yeah, and there is this uh, discussion about this one around the park, which is the inspiration for these bizarre paintings. Bruno says that it would circle the pond and uh, that she asks Bruno to describe how this one looks by to the finest details and as we know in this garment or the dress worn by the characters in different situations it has this one yeah to, to me the, the whole dialogue exchange in quotation marks this is really more of a monologue from from Bruno to me that read as as kind of the film trying to explain it, explain itself to the audience or trying to explain what it tries to do to the audience in 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 the film film's world this this is Bruno explaining his role to to Francesca but there are quite a lot of these these weird statements that Bruno hides within his monologue like i i suppose this is the journey we are all all on from literal to abstract and i'm i'm told that the paintings that look nothing like this are sold at a at a higher value so why would we worry if she doesn't know what she's creating and to, to me all, all of this is is kind of the, the film coming clean on on the fact that it doesn't really try to do or be anything like, like or, or on your traditional film level. It, it tries to be more of an this this. It tries to be a journey from literal filmmaking to the more abstract expression. And what you are supposed to take from it is is the more abstract nature, the, the more abstract abstract realm 
of what is being shown to you and just, you know, value what's being shown and not really try to find any kind of a meaning or definition from from the film. Yeah, we I, it was really helpful during the research of this of this film to find interviews from Luca Guadagnino himself who explained that this film is more like a stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness is the structure and meant to capture the feel of memory on film and layering stories on top of each other. Yeah, and on, on that regard, this did remind me of, of Cinema Paradiso, which also has, has the same kind of a narrative framework around its story. There's the main character who carries these memories with him, and those memories have shaped and, and defined him and, and the person he has grown up to be. And in the course of the film, the main character kind of walks, rewalks his memory lane, coming face to face with with those those kind of a high points or or plot points of of his past that that show you who he was and how he became the person he is today. And and through this process. The main character in Cinema Paradiso finds some sort of equilibrium. And that's kind of what I, I took that is supposed to happen with, with Francesca in, in course of the film. Like with all, with all those, those, those flashbacks and, and callbacks to, to her, her childhood, her teens, which kind of, kind of a very hardly intersect with, with her adult life like in in most of most of her so-called flashbacks francesca is being played by julian moore uh, something that quite doesn't make any linear plot logic sense is also that the, the character of the mother in so-called present day let's say seems to be of a german origin whereas the young sophia character is something like a londoner as in the British accent. Yeah, language being something that is kind of constantly being toyed with here. Francesca herself switches the, the language she uses from, from English to Italy to, to German. That, that's kind of the range of, of different languages that you have. Yeah, something that should be said about this cinematography, because a couple of things have been said, about it is that uh, Guadagnino wanted, quote, the logic of their unconscious to be in the middle of the frame. And uh, this last time, was it fourth or fifth goddamn time when I watched this film, I started to look at like the middle of the frame or the, the golden gut point, like what's happening here. And uh, sometimes I just saw laundry or walls, which is probably not really the center point of their unconscious. <laughs> Anyway, he also said that I didn't want the camera to be at all a protagonist. Is the camera an antagonist? What does it mean? Hmm. And he also said that, quote, um, this is not a direct quote, but he, he said that only one frame in the film has movement when you see past and present merging together. And that is at the end of the film when we have this dance scene with the fancy clothing. That is true, that the film kind of does... <sighs> The tried and true, often seen art house cinematography thing where it, where it uses 
use a still camera through and throughout, uses very clear edits, uses cuts that, that don't once again serve a direct narrative purpose and which are there for you to, you to essentially notice that, that this cut happened. And yeah. that, 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 that's something you often see in, in this, this more artistic experiments from directors. Yeah, just check out how stubbornly, like militantly, the, the camera just refuses to even tilt when we have this shot where Francesca is approaching the family home or the mother's home. And, uh, well, essentially, we get a finally when Francesca gets so close to the frame that we only see a, like a torso shot of her. We don't tilt to the close up, we cut to her close up of her face, which I, which I found really kind of the more interesting cuts of the film. I'm not saying that that cinematography here is is bad. It's it's quite good for what it tries to do. My my pro problem with with the cinematography and with the editing more is the just the fact that I have seen this type of cinematography quite often in in these these more artistic art house short films and uh, short films. So to me, this is, this is kind of an established technique that that when I saw it here, I was kind of like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, nice to see you once again, camera. Doesn't take out the fact that the cinematography is clearly exquisite in this film, and it's that might be the like the, the best aspect for everybody to watch or take away from here. Yeah, I I would second that opinion. To me, also the cinematography. Even though I, I did criticize it, it being something that I've seen quite often in this type of films being used, it still is pretty damn good. Yeah, of course, it's this kind of a, the, the, the camera is always on some kind of a tripod all the time. This still shot imagery, sorry, used until we get to the end and we get some moving camera actually, but it, it didn't bother me. This was also moving faster from frame to frame than uh, usual Magdi from production. And I think the film and the 37 minutes all of it went what goes past quite fast. I uh, have to disagree with that notion. I felt, to me, the film well felt a hell of a lot longer than, than 37 minutes or 30 minutes, which would be the more closer estimate of exactly how much movie you have. The, the rest of the seven minutes more are just the opening and closing. Okay. It's uh, very much an individu individual experience. I, th I thought that there is enough to confuse the hell out of you that uh, it doesn't really you know, kind of bore you. Well, su surprise, surprise, confusing film is, is being confusing. But still... I've I, I've seen stronger reports on on this territory, on, unfortunately. To, to me, this, this is kind kind of a your traditional confusing abstract cinema. Well, uh, I'm curious because here is uh, on my notes the, the possibly the most confusing part of the film, perhaps. Yeah, granted, we are probably not supposed to dissect everything to the T and understand much of anything here, but uh, I found this intriguing when supposedly Sophia and father are fighting, the father of 
Francesca. It goes like this, quote, so you act out, but your disappointment, I'm not disappointed. This is, I guess, Sophia. And then the father goes, always thinking this has to do with you. But it does, or you wouldn't have done it. You live like it's all some kind of game. Is it not enough that I have apologized? You dress our daughter in her clothes? You are sick. Why waste a beautiful dress? I suppose they are talking about uh, dressing their daughter, as in Francesca. And, but whose clothes are we talking about? Are we talking about the mystery character, Adut? Whose clothes are they? And why is it sick? This is something that I have no idea what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and it's it's obvious why you don't have have an idea because nobody ever established the, who who is the characters whose clothes they are now talking about. But at the same shot of the, the finishing this scene, we, there's a shot where we see the father sitting in the chair. And with what looks to be a butterfly on his hand. So is this the whoever came out of Chrysalis? Because there's a quote about Chrysalis that uh, that Adut says when Francesca is in the rented apartment or whatever apartment it is in New York. Luca has an interesting quote that I picked up here. Quote, every filmmaker I learned from are charlatans because you have to sell an idea that is in your mind to people that have to give you money. And then you have to pretend that you know all the answers when you don't know all the answers, end quote. So kind of laying it out and clear that you are not supposed to understand anything or everything, even as a director. You probably also noticed the so-called Northern Lights, but the Northern Lights are taking place in Italy to, during this little outside outdoors party. And once again, the, the uh, McLachlan is playing some character in this party. Seems like some kind of a servant. Lucas' friend commented on the movie that, more or less, this is like paraphrasing, I found it very straightforward in its capacity of giving shape to the logic of dream and the logic of unconscious, where sometimes you don't need a straight narrative to understand what's happening to you. So kind of, and it's repeating the same point. Yeah, and and I, I kind of... Uh, agree with that estimate um the movie is dreamlike not not necessarily the most dreamlike film i have seen or even that we have seen when it, com when it comes to playing with the construction of dreams when it comes to being a dreamlike or dreamish i would say that this film film falls pretty damn short in in comparison for example an an Andalusian dog, which I also wanted to be film replication of a dream. Uh, but when it comes to the motive of the movie, I, I would say that that does play out pretty obviously. I mean, in the course of the film, I would say, I would almost say that Francesca even works it out herself when when she has her talk about. Talk, talk about the memories and how they shape you. And I, I guess that's what, what the director here is also aiming at. He's not so much trying to make a traditional narrative experience uh, as he's more trying to create an, an experience that would leave an emotional memory in, to your head. If, if going by the, the film statements, 
that should be something that would then stick with you forever. And something that you, in a way, would never truly really forget. And because of this, the film in the end would kind of become immortal. Any, any thoughts on this Tony character? Tony is this uh, suggested to be socially inept or relationship-wise inept character, yet apparently sexually very much desirable for Francesca. Uh, is Tony also the man from the opera in some way? Is one of the parallel universes of the film suggested here? There's uh, also kind of a dispassionate shoot at Tony's direction from the young Francesca. Oh no, it's a young Sophia, right? Isn't it? Young Sophia saying, this you call passion? And... Yeah, wait, wait, wait. When it comes to Tony, I I don't know if if he's really truly supposed to serve any any kind of a stronger meaning in the film, and not just be a character that helps the filmmaker to establish once again one of the Francesca's memories. There is kind of a erotic, uh, romantic, sensual past experiences. Uh, being something that are supposed to stick with people pretty strongly. Like, you and I, we are supposed to remember the first time we had sex. I I don't, I don't, but but people are supposed to do that. And people are supposed to remember their, their first love, their first awkward kiss, etc., etc., etc. And to me, in, in this film, Tony read mo- mostly as as a, as a as a film's characterization of of that memory. Like Tony is there to to be the first awkward boyfriend that Francesca would have, and the, and the first awkward kiss that Francesca now would remember all, always, because the first kiss is supposed to be something so magical or, or something mm. that that the memory just remains with mm. you always um i'm not saying that the script is would be especially well written or that it would have like such of a vocabulary that it, it would blow your mind on the screen nor would i even suggest that the film has topics that would be new in any way but funnily enough well, it's written by this Mitnick dude, but the, the the way that it's written sometimes, especially the parts that are coming through the ventilation shaft from Adut's mouth, it's that kind of a kind of a weird. It's just got, that kind of a prose that you would expect to come from a female mouth, in in my opinion, or from a female writer's perspective, because I don't know that the, the descriptions are quite quite something that i would just expect from a female writer in a way there's there's a certain tenderness maybe about it that i would not expect from a male writer um yeah to me it's m- more something that i would expect from a stage writer yeah yeah guadagnino has given praise towards writer midnick as a writer he says something like that he's he's fantastic or amazing or something like that, some kind of a superlative like that so he seemed to be really happy with that product. Uh, yeah, you you kind of although have to do that 
when you reach the point where you're making your short film about it from, from the dude's script. Yeah, well, you know, you can't say that this was a shit show of a script, but we managed. Yeah, it, it, especially as as this film, to me, it, it kind of reads like some kind of a Lucas uh, passion project. I this this most definitely hasn't been a production that has been forced upon Luca by the production house. No, and I I also don't feel that it's something that was forced or maneuvered from the direction of the Valentino company. This is something that he truly wanted to do. But uh, looking at the um, follow up scene from the scene where the mother and Francesca are talking about this Tony character, there is uh, Francesca looking at her memory. And, uh, well, once again, if you want to mess up your brain cells here even further in this show, it seems to be what is something like, that seems to me, from at least these angles, something like a five-year-old Francesca. And then it's suggested by the dialogue that, that Francesca has given herself to her future inept boyfriend, Tony. Or is it Julianne Moore's Francesca who gave herself to him when she was neither the five-year-old nor her current self, but some kind of a stage in between? Who knows? But it would be kind of creepy if the five-year-old had sex with Tony, I, I have to admit. Yeah, it, 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 then again, it also would be extremely art house. <laughs> well, yeah, I, when it comes to this kind of a mother openly discussing sexual encounters with her children, I thought it's quite icky. It seems that at least in the movies, the, the female characters like to do that, like mother and daughter relationship would be something like this, that is supposed to be warm when you're talking about all your sexual fantasies and uh, happenings, but uh, it's not something that would exactly come into my mind. Doesn't that read as, as personal, intimate and sensual to you? But with your mother? You know, intimate, personal and sensual. Talking in in art cinema language terms, I almost make the case that that when it comes to art cinema, having weird and at times even creepy discussions about about your sex life with your own mom, that that kind of is 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 the go-to wording of these two characters are close to each other. Isn't it nice to talk about art cinema at 9 p.m. On the Sunday night with your favorite podcast friend when you're having a hangover. It, it well, I I must say it it is it is an experience. Like I what what I have have behind me is is a twelve hour drinking streak. In, in du, during course of which basically every single type of booze that booze that exists was covered and. At at this point of of my podcasting career, I'm I'm having the famous dog and after going on with full force. So I, I would say that I'm I'm in in the prime mental state to to approach art house art cinema experiment thingy. Yeah, after seeing what kind of a film would be in front of you and knowing that you would have some. Drinking games also this week. Uh, you must have been like, oh, Jesus, Curry, what? <laughs> yeah. But uh, indeed, as suggested in this extremely uh, cohesive podcast uh, episode, uh, Mama was not grateful for Bruno enduring her art for so long. 
or something, something. Francesca says that uh, we are so grateful for everything you've done to her. I hope she made that clear. And Bruno goes, she wouldn't see me. So yes, I I, I guess she wasn't grateful. Yeah, maybe Mama didn't like that he sorted her art away in the previous scene, or did he criticize her work? Or well, he leaves, and that's it. This is the last scene before the final scene. As it happens, we get the kind of intertwining of all of these weirdnesses regarding adult young Sophia, Francesca, past, present, and all that. And Francesca is once again trying to convince her mom to move to New York and says that there will still be painting there on her, but she insists that since this is her home, she doesn't want to leave. Like, I guess it's just that Sophia still hasn't figured out that it'll be all right because I think uh, some kind of a much nicer Kyle MacLachlan character will take care of her there as well. So if she's willing, of course. But here, here the timelines of the stories of the film get overlap very aggressively. It seems almost like there's at least some linearity in how insane the film is. So it just kind of uh, gets into full swing here. As Francesca tells about the whole story about this woman who dresses the way you used to and she met a man at the opera who was not her husband, da-da-da-da-da. And mom seems to be extremely excited about this story involving infidelity like just get some smile on her face and says was he handsome it's all weird and finally they are interacting with this character of adult who hands over the swan's dress and then she fades away from the mise-en-scene yeah the, the adult who up until this point, has had the essence of being almost a fictional character, like some kind of a hallucination or or ghost or or something non-physical. Now, all of a sudden, appears to have actually some kind of a physical quality to her, as she's being able to to pass on the dress, the same way as as the young Francesca. Or, or young Sophie is is also now being able to to control and lift up physical objects as the the young Francesca is the one who first picks up the tre- dress and gives that to Adut for Adut to pass it on forward. Mm, yeah, that's young Sophia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, young young Sophia and Francesca ends her monologue of the story with this quote mommy there's so much in life that i can't express and then she says in uh, german why not mommy why not and the audience is asking probably why what but uh, guaragnino has something to say about i believe this part and he said quote francesca is there to find a way to voice out to the mother how this mother was somehow very he- heavy lead on her capacity of expression. But the mother somehow subverts this narrative by showing Francesca that, actually, Francesca has all the possibilities to be somehow emotionally free, that nobody is putting a lid on her. She has to find her own voice." End quote. Fancy, fancy, fancy. And and not, 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 not only that, but 
but Francesca's questioning of, of why not also seems to be curing her mom from blindness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, because that, that's, that's how blindness works. Absolutely. So we are in some kind of a dream world because uh, presumably this is something that doesn't really happen every day in the real world. And uh, she throws away her walking stick and now he's having the dress established in many of these scenes. Arut says that show her, mom goes, shall I? And Arut fades away and suddenly they are in the last scene of the film somewhere outside. And mother goes, do you see it? Francesca goes, what is it? And the answer, of course, is it's a Valentino advertisement. Essentially, yeah, it, it, it's it's one bunch of female hippies in, in Valentino dresses <laughs> it's da- like, dancing the non-existent music in in the mom's backyard or something like that well they're listening to Ruichi sakamoto's great music and and, and francesca looks looks something like she's go- going to start yelling get out of my goddamn lawn you bunch of kids but but instead just opts out to burst in the laughter yeah i guess she found her freedom or something and peace of mind with her past that didn't make any sense to begin with. Well, at, at least she found something like 15 Valentino dresses. Or she's losing her mind here. Like. Or she's losing her mind, which pretty much could, could be the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. Was the kind of a big twist here that she must be the one ready for some kind of caretaking facility at this point? I mean, <laughs> she could just go look into the mirror and go like, it's me who needs help here, not my mother. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, 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 that's the film. Uh, we reach, reach, reach the end, end credits in, in something like 33 minutes. Yeah, perhaps it's good to point out that in case you didn't figure it out, there's also kind of the main cast of the film dancing there. It's Adut, Sofia, Vera and probably some other characters. We are also given like an extensive list of the of the of the dresses in the film. Valentino Haute Couture, Fall Winter 2018, 2019, which is there as explained by was it Guadagnino that they're kind of like the characters in the film in the way that you list them in there. In this this not Valentino commercial. In this not Valentino commercial. Alright, so in the wires David Ehrlich thought that branded content at its most vapid. And David Rooney from Hollywood Reporter said that, as it is, the risibly artsy film is a stream of consciousness, a psychological enigma that never coheres, end quote. Yeah, as it's not supposed to, clearly. Mark Rico from the Film Inquiry said, a lot of things, but let's keep it short. While the staggering girl takes a journey that's likely to leave viewers feeling lost along the way, those willing to surrender to its abstract delivery will be treated to a highly texturized smorgasbord of fashion and forgotten memories, one that succeeds almost entirely through the mesmerizing power of its beauty alone. End quote. Whereas Stephen Porcio from the Headstuff.org said, We never understand the dynamic between Francesca and her mother, Sophia, because the actors playing the younger versions of their characters look like they have maybe 10 years of a difference in age, if that, end quote. Agreed, 100%. It was weird. Emil Maskell from flipscreen.com said that the pairing of the two Italians, Guadagnino and Valentino's creative director, 
Pierpaolo Piccioli is a stylistic daydream, end quote. Also said, quote, Reflections upon memory are the central dynamics of this arthouse film. The peculiar presence of characters are occasionally lost amongst the weaving threads of this narrative. The staggering girl fumbles over aspects of its own storytelling, but does manage to thread the needle of mysterious intrigue throughout its delicate fabric, end quote. And uh, if you would like to kind of a pull something together from all of these professional reviews, well, in Rotten Tomatoes, it seems that 39% of the viewers like the film. So it kind of suggests a serious split, of course, in the way that people see this film. Some people are not feeling willing to accept the, the abstractness. They were looking for more cohesiveness in the script, and some are just fine with it being what it is. But what was your favorite performance, Henrik? On my end, I guess... And and this might be a bit of cheap shooting from me, but Julianne Moore, like Ooh. like su su surprise surprise, you hog most of the screen time, and you you have all, all the all the close ups and extreme close ups on your to your advantage. Mm. I would say that Julianne Moore didn't convince me all the way through. If I would look at the second last scene, I think she was sounding a little bit too literary. Here and there, but when it comes to sounding literary or li reading something that is definitely written li like it's very literary, Kiki Lane is reading some of those parts that are written like playwright. So Kiki Lane, I don't know, for no particular reason, I guess, or the the way that she was able to still deliver those very literally sounding bits with some kind of a believable emotion. Let's go with Kiki Lane. Three adjectives to describe the film would be from me. Hazy, interdimensional, and confusing. Uh, for me, it would be slow, because I, I really felt that, the, to me, the film felt something like an hour long. Ooh. This this most definitely Ooh. wasn't some uh, wasn't an experience just that that just quickly fly flied past me. Mm. I would also go with absent-minded and stylish. Stylish being the, the I, I would say the strongest positive adjective that I can use in reference to this film. But from here we go to the one and only question: Would you recommend the Staggering Girl, Henrik? Ah, uh, to be frank, no. I I I do know that I'm I'm. Perhaps supposed to be the some some kind of a advocate crusader of of art, cinema, and, and stylistic experiments here in the flick lab. But in in here, I really didn't feel for uh, feel it. Um, I I I I, I really I, I did see what the director was trying to do. And to a certain point, I was willing to go with it. But in the end, when it comes to the to the building blocks of the film, when it, when it comes to the way how it's being directed, how it's being shot, how it's all, all together being presented to you, that's something that I've already seen like a million times in in art cinemas. It's it's kind of the the go-to filming tricks. That, that art directors usually pull off 
there is the abstract nature of it. There, there is some dreamlikeness to this film. When it comes to dreamlikeness, uh, like mentioned, I, I would say that, well, well, we have seen it in, in, in the flick lab. In my opinion, done better, done, done more dreamlikely in, in Uncle Poonmei and in an Andalusian dog. And, and and the the whole kind of a I'm not really trying to make any kind of a sense here aspect of of, of the director's goals. You you can see the David Lynch, you can see early early David Cronenberg there, but I I would make the case that that in, with, with Lynch with Cronenberg there was still some kind of a kind of a notion that there was some guy, kind of a statement that carried through the film in, in their case and this film doesn't have it as as strongly this is not the the, the stagger girl is not some kind of a study about being a mother about feminine rage about the Psychophysical manifestations that that strong feelings like hatred can have to have on you. It just kind of for me it fell flat on on so many levels, and it it really kind of makes it hard for me to to recommend seeing the film. If you choose to see it, it's it's just not it, it's not a big loss loss of your time. So. By all means, you know, in that case, check it out. It's not something that that you have to be sorry for if if, if you end up looking uh, looking through the stacking girl. But I wouldn't say that you most definitely need to now run off to movie.com and and you know start your seven day trial period just to see this film. Yeah, I, I'm I'm certain that there are. Better films on movie than this one. There are there most likely most definitely there also will in the future there will be better films than the Staggering Girl. So maybe you know just save up that seven day trial ship. There goes our collaboration chances with <laughs> movie.com. <laughs> yeah, but by by all means at at, at least give give our uh, one month link a, a shot. Just just. Don't don't fuck it up with the the credit card info. And if you if you <laughs> if you have better luck than Henrik, then you should get the one month for free if you use our links from the Flick Club Facebook pages. There's a lot of exhilarating tight herpas there, so give it a go. There's also a couple of other streaming sites that we could kind of a give a go later in this podcast. But when it when it comes to inspirations of this film, it I guess should be mentioned as well that Adut is apparently a homage to the film Another Woman, which I haven't seen. It's an American film from the 80s that Luke adores, Woody Allen film from 1988, where we also have, by the way, a woman who rents an apartment and is writing a book. And would I recommend uh, The Staggering Girl? Well, uh, I guess I'm just a repeating parrot at this point, but like the cinematography is fantastic the plot itself as we have explained that nauseum is is kind of out there if you are into this kind of a kind of a, the really which is kind of a 
experimental cinema, I would suggest that you could give it a go. It will probably infuriate you that <laughs> that it's so open and abstract. But if you can get past that, I think it's an easy watch, as you said. Like at least it's thirty minutes to watch, and it's a Guadagnino product. And uh, I think it's something that if if you get into this film, it's something that kind of keeps on giving you new dimensions with more watches as i've now seen it like four or five times i can definitely state that so just give it a go uh give it a go it's kind of a in the middle recommendation for me because there are a lot of tide harpas films in this vein but uh, i think it's just that this the cinematography is so good that you can really watch it just for only this factor if you are if you are a fan of cinema enough to respect such of a aspect. Would that be all about the the stuttering man or the staggering girl? I, I, I guess that's enough. What what are next week's Tide Ahead Pass? Well I was thinking I've been thinking for it quite a while. I don't know if you you you're really excited about the fact that I'm thinking here, but I was thinking that we have discussed Dune here, and the new Dune is coming up. Would you be interested in checking out Dune 1984? Uh, you, you, you mean perhaps the worst film David Lynch ever made? Yeah, we haven't watched any David Lynch, so we could start <laughs> off. <laughs> we, 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 can, we can start with the one film that even David Lynch is ashamed of. Yeah. You know, here, 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 here's the introduction to David Lynch. It sucks. Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, it's it, it's it's more Kyle MacLan and and there's Sting in some kind of a rocket wing speedo thing. With the expectation that we would check out the the new one then when it's out to compare. <laughs> <laughs> God, God damn, this is a workload. <laughs> But what? Fine, fine. You know, let, let's 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 go out to David Lynch and not touch upon anything good. That that's more like it. Okay. Um. Thank you for joining us. And if you feel like giving us a review, then you can do that. Obviously, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your goddamn podcasts. In another note, we could kind of start to close off the episode by finally by once again quoting. Our friend Luca Guadagnino, once I find a goddamn quote, which might take a few hours. So, remember to change your underwear. Yeah, he was talking about mood and atmosphere of films. Quote I think it's important to know that you don't know what you're doing while you're doing it. That's essentially my whole life. God. And this episode, which has been as cohesive story-wise as this film. Do next week. Join us then. Ja sammutan nauhoitukset.